So this sermon is going to be a bit different than the last one. So last week's sermon was kind of topical, um, where we, we took the topic of religion and politics, and we asked the question, do those two things mix? Should we, as Christians, be talking about politics? Should we be engaged in politics? How do we think about that? What do we do with the separation of church and state? Um, all these sorts of things. We answered that question, so it was a very topical um, study together. Tonight, we're, being, we're getting back into um, Romans chapter 5, and it will be a more theological sermon. So it's going to be a, a pretty theological sermon, but here's the thing I want you to see. Just because it's going to be very heavily theological doesn't mean that it's not very practical. In fact, this will be a very practical sermon at the same time. So a theological sermon with very practical applications, and that is because theology matters. Theology shapes how you live, and whether you know it or not, everyone is a theologian. Everyone believes something about God, which is really all theology is. It's theos lagos, words about God. So even an atheist has a theology. It's just very small. That God doesn't exist. So Doug Wilson says uh, that atheists have two things of which they are sure. One, God doesn't exist. Two, and I hate him. So even atheists have a theo theology. Okay? And so theology matters. Why? Because it impacts how you live. It impacts how you live. This sermon in the second half of Romans chapter 5 is going to cover topics like, why do we die? It's going to have a, a direct application to racism. And it's going to have a direct application to every day of your life living with hope for a better future. That the future can be better than the past. So this is a very practical sermon. So uh, with that said, let's stand together once again as we honor the reading of God's Word. We'll start in uh, verse 12 of chapter 5. This is God's Word. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness led to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and as we come to it tonight, we ask that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would say to us for your glory and your glory alone. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. So the title of the sermon tonight is The Tale of Two Adams. The Tale of Two Adams. Not atoms, but Adams. Adam, the first man. The outline has two points, and these titles I got from Doug Wilson's commentary, so this is not original, but it's this, Humanity 1.0 and Humanity 2.0. So our two points, Humanity 1.0, the reign of death, and Humanity 2.0, reigning in life. 
So uh, the first point as we jump into this is this passage sort of sets us up uh, in understanding how we are justified by the work of one man. So if you remember a few weeks ago when we were at the beginning of Romans chapter 5, we talked about um, how Jesus died for the ungodly. He died while we were still sinners. And his death atoned for our sins and justifies us so that all who believe in him are justified, are counted righteous, are forgiven. Um, and, um, and if that is true, that we were saved by his life, then it's also true that we will be saved in the future and in the future judgment that, that is to come, that we will be spared from that as well. And so we can have confidence even in the midst of suffering that all things work for our good because um, God loves us. And he demonstrated that love for us by sending his son to die for us. And so um, the, the question that kind of moves from that is, okay, one man died for us. There's only one person who died for us in this kind of way that atones for our sins and makes us right before God. How does that work? Is that fair? Is it fair for God to look at you and I and say, you're justified, you're righteous, you're forgiven because of the work of one person? That doesn't seem right. Shouldn't we all kind of stand on our own? Shouldn't we just be individuals who are measured and weighted by our own merits. And so Paul then in verse 12 kind of starts unpacking this idea of what we call federal headship. How God deals and how God relates to humanity um, is, is unpacked here. And we'll see two Adams, two men, two heads of covenant relationship, Adam and Christ. So let's start with the first one, Humanity 1.0. Who was Adam? So Adam, the first man, created from the dust. So Adam was created from the ground, Adamah in the Hebrew. So he was created out of the ground. He's a dirt man. Right? He was created by God out of the dirt, created in the image of God. Right? And God breathes life into him as we see. And so even from that very moment of creation, Adam becomes significant and that he represents all of humanity. Because in his creation, he was all of humanity. Do you realize that? That there was a point in history when there was just one man, there was one Adam who was humanity. And so from that point on, um, sort of the generic term for all of humanity is Adam, is man. Much like we even still will say mankind when speaking of the human race in general. Um, and so Adam, even in this name and the usage of the main name, becomes representative of all mankind. His wife, Eve, was created after him. She was taken from his side. She didn't come from the ground. She didn't come from Adamah, but she came out of man, right? She came out of man. So woman, she's out of Man And so even his wife, Eve, who is a unique creation by God, was created out of man so that Adam stands as that first representative man. He is the head. He is the federal head. So here's a topic in theology that, that we need to talk about tonight. And this is going to be kind of the key thing to listen to is the idea of federal headship. I don't know what you guys think of when you think of the word federal I think of the United States government. I think of, you know, federal courts and the federal system. Um, and, and there's some uh, merit to thinking in that way, because if you think about the way our government is set up, it's a federal system, it's a representative government, right? And so we elect officials to represent us in the governing authority. Right? We talked about that um, some last week there at the end. But our representatives do the work of governing on our behalf and as our representatives. And so the word federal comes from the Latin word foidus. foidus. Um, and it, it means covenant or treaty or uh, compact. And so it, the, the idea here is that a, a federal relationship is a relationship that is based on a 
covenant. It's based on a commitment, an agreement between two or more persons. That's what the kids' catechism says. What is a covenant? An agreement between two or more persons. And as we look to the Bible, we see that God, when he enters into relationships with humans, he does so through covenant, through this agreement. There's, there are terms that are put on the table that God agrees to, um, and we call this a covenant relationship or a federal relationship. And, and in a covenant agreement, there are two parties, right? There's the Lord of the covenant, and then there is sort of the, the servant of the covenant. There's sort of two parties that go um, into this. There's the one who initiates and the one who agrees. Um, and we see that God institutes a covenant of works with Adam in the garden. Okay, so the covenant of works is instituted with Adam in the Garden of Eden. All right, so those of you who know your Bible are like, I don't remember that. I don't remember ever saying, no, I hereby establish a covenant of works because the Bible doesn't say that. Okay, and so let me first explain to you what theologians mean by covenant of works. And then I'll seek to sort of show you why I believe that it is a biblical concept, even though Genesis you know, 1, 2, and 3 doesn't ever refer to a covenant specifically. So here's the idea of the covenant of works. The covenant of works is the idea that God condescends, he comes down to Adam, and he makes an agreement with Adam. He gives him, he says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, right? He gives them this dominion mandate. He says, hey, go. I've given you every plant for food. Go, enjoy, spread, fill the earth, subdue it, take dominion, right? But there's this one tree that you are not to eat of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So he puts that tree in the midst of the garden and says, hey, you cannot eat of this tree, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay? So what do we see? We see a covenant Lord, and then we see uh, the, the servant role in this covenant. And um, God makes this covenant with Adam. We also see stipulations. We see promises of life, and we see curses for breaking those stipulations. You know, you shall surely die. So we've got an agreement between two or more persons with promises of blessing upon faithfulness to that covenant and promises of curses if you break this covenant. And so although the Bible doesn't say in the first few chapters of Genesis that this is a covenant that I'm making with you, Abraham, it's kind of like this. So walks like a duck and quacks like a duck. It's a duck, right? And so if, if that doesn't work for you to say, well, it's got all the parts of a covenant, it just doesn't call it covenant, there's a, there's a verse in Hosea. Hosea chapter 6, verse 7, speaking of, uh, sorry, speaking of Israel, when Israel had been sort of caught up in idolatry and they have forgotten God, they have rebelled against God, they've been like an unfaithful spouse to their Lord, like a wife who has broken her covenants, right? Hosea 6, 7 says like this, of Israel. It says, But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. And so here in Hosea, we see covenant breaking Israel compared to Adam, saying they're the same in that they both broke covenant. They both transgressed the covenant. And so we see even here in the Bible itself <clears throat> that the Bible assumes this is a covenant relationship between God and Adam there in the garden. And we call this the covenant of works. Why? Because it was a covenant that had to be up, upheld through doing certain works, through uh, being fruitful, multiplying, filling the earth, and not eating of the tree. But we know Adam broke the covenant. Right? Satan comes to the woman, deceives the woman. She gives the fruit to her husband and he eats. And, and God comes, what have you done? And God institutes these covenant curses. The curse of sin. We call this the fall. The fall of man into sin. 
Um, and this happened because they broke the covenant. Verse 12 says, Sin came into the world through one man. Now, if you're familiar with the story, this statement here in verse 12 of Romans 5 is a helpful proof of this federal headship idea. Because it says, Sin came into the world through one man. But if you remember the story, who was the first one to break the commandment of God in terms of eating the fruit? It was Eve. So the, the woman sinned first. But Paul says here that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. Why? Because Adam was the federal head. He was the head of that covenant. He was the representative. Just like when our government representatives do stupid things, we have to pay for it, right? You know, if Uncle Joe, he's got his finger on the nuclear button, right? If he presses the button, we have to pay for that, right? He's our representative. Why? He's our covenant head. He's administrating the covenant of the United States Constitution, right? And so he's a covenant head. So Adam represented all of humanity because he was all of humanity, and we are all in him. We are his offspring. We are his descendants. Now, we don't like that a lot because we, we think that's unfair to be judged based on someone else. But you have to remember, we are intimately connected to Adam. We have forgotten in our hyper-individualist age that we aren't islands to ourselves. That we're connected to the generations before us in a very real way. We're connected to the generations after us in a very real way. And the Bible um, is clear on this, that we are all in Adam when he fell. And so therefore, sin came into the world through that one man and then death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam's failure as head brought sin and death upon all whom he represented. You see that? He brought sin and death into all whom he represented. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Sin brings death. This is why we die. This is why everything that dies, dies because of sin. It's the curse of sin. Now in this, in this verse, uh, the, the last bit there of verse 12, there's a bit of sort of controversy in the theological world that you need to be aware of. Um, and this goes back to uh, St. Augustine, the Latin translation of this verse, the doctrine of original sin. Okay, the doctrine of original sin is, is this what I'm teaching you right now, that, that there was an, a fall of humanity in Adam and that we are all condemned in that original sin, that we inherit a sinful nature and we are uh, subject to wrath and judgment um, because of the fall of Adam. People who disagree with this doctrine will say this is, this is something that Augustine made up. Um, the, the evangelists that were on campus last, uh, last semester or two, um, Kerrigan, Skelly, uh, he, he, he told me that original sin is an Augustinian heresy, that, that Augustine made this up. Um, this is a false teaching. And here's the controversy around that. Because in the Latin translation from the Greek New Testament that Augustine was working with, verse 12 read something like this. Um, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, it says this, And so death spread to all men because all sinned in him. So we don't see that in him in our Bibles. But the Latin translation read something like that. And so Augustine sees that and says, Oh, yes, we all fell, we all sinned in Adam because of this federal relationship. Now, we can agree and we know that that was a faulty translation. That is not the right way to interpret that. Uh, it, it's almost like there was an addition of words. Now, there's some more nuance to the translation that I'm not going to pretend to understand because I'm not a linguist and I'm not an expert in the languages. Um, but even if we say, hey, that was a bad translation that led potentially to Augustine making this bad theological um, conclusion, how do we work around that? How do we know what the Bible is teaching? We practice sound hermeneutics, system of interpretation. 
the same way that you interpret any other document. You look to the surrounding context and you allow that context to help you interpret. And so I believe that it's clear in Romans 5 that when we allow the surrounding context to help us properly interpret, we see that the theology, the conclusion that Augustine came to is true, even if the translation was false. And here, I'm going to hope to demonstrate that to you uh, now. So, if you look at the logic of verses 13 and 14, Paul is sort of making his case that we all fell in Adam, that we are all guilty and condemned in Adam, the way that Augustine and others have seen it. And so we'll see the proof of federal headship, and that is in this, that there was death apart from the law. Death apart from the law. Look at verses 13 and 14. It says, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And so what he's saying here is if you look, people died in between the time of Adam and Moses. But the law was not given to those people in that time frame. It says, look, it says that they sinned um, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. So there's a way that Adam's transgression was different than those who lived between Adam and Moses. And what is that difference? Their sin was not against a given law, a, a, a special revelation. Like Adam was commanded not to eat of that tree. Moses received the law on Sinai, but those who lived in the meantime didn't have that direct law um, given to them. And it says, and, and sin is not counted, sin is not imputed where there is no law. And so the logic is, then why did they die? Because they sinned in Adam. Because they are condemned because of their federal head, their representative head. And so death reigned in this time period. And this is a proof to Paul that the, the, the guilt of sin, the effects and consequences of sin, um, is due to that fall. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. Notice it says that, verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. I thought this was interesting. Death reigned, but Adam was supposed to reign. You see that? Adam was supposed to be the one to reign. He was created in the image of God and given dominion over the whole world over everything. He was to be, in a way, a, a king on the earth, ruling under God's authority, stewarding all things, bringing the, the, the world into submission and to this glorious flourishing, to the glory of God. He was supposed to be the reigning king. But because he sinned, he, he violated the covenant, death reigned instead. And then that leads Paul into this just transition here. He says, um, Adam was a type of the one uh, who was to come. So Paul sets up a comparison of another federal head whose actions would impact those who would follow him. Okay? So, so far in verses 12 through 14, we've seen that Adam's action as federal head impacted those who would come after him in that they all died and all are condemned as it says in uh what is that later on in the passage verse 18 they're all condemned because of adam and there's another one to come who is to be a federal head whose actions would have great consequences for those who follow him as well which leads us to the second point this humanity 2.0 reigning in life Paul sets up this comparison. He uses this phrase, free gift, several times in this passage. He compares the free gift to the trespass. So Adam's action is, is referred to as the trespass or the sin or the disobedience. And, and Christ's action is called the free gift. And there's this comparison that is set up. And the logic is this. If Adam's disobedience 
and the consequences were so significant, and he was just a type of the one who was to come, how much more significant are the consequences of the anti-types obedience? Okay, so let's talk about a type. What is a type? Uh, the idea is, is it is almost like a, a mold or a form that is made where something is, is, is pressed into wax and you're left behind this, this type, this imprint of the thing. It's not the actual thing, but it is sort of like the imprint of the thing. It's like a shadow versus the substance, right? The, 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 it, is, it is something that's pointing to something else. There's similarities and that you can look at the imprint. If you took a ring and you imprinted it in the clay, you could look at that imprint and say, okay, I can understand something about that thing. You know, you might can read the text that is uh, carved on the ring. You can tell the size. Uh, you can tell how it's cut and all these things. But it, it isn't quite the thing. It's not quite the ring. There's a different glory there. And we see this all throughout the scriptures that we call typology, where we see pictures of something that was to come. You know, we think about uh, the, probably the, the biggest example of this is the sacrificial lamb in the Old Testament. The, the lamb that is sacrificed for the sins of the people. Jesus comes onto the scene in the New Testament. John the Baptist says, Behold, what? The lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And so that sacrificial lamb was like the, the imprint of the ring in the clay. Jesus was the actual ring. Adam is that same type. He's a type of federal head that was just a type, but pointing to someone better who is to come pointing to a better man, pointing to the true and better Adam, as we sing in the first hymn. And so the logic is, if the type wrecked so much carnage in the world, everywhere we look, we see the result of Adam's disobedience. Suffering, pain, evil, injustice, death. These are all consequences of Adam's disobedience, and it's everywhere. If the types, disobedience, brought so much carnage to the world, how much greater will be the result of the obedience of the substance? You see, if the imprint can wreak so much havoc in the world, how much blessing can the ring bring into the world? The true thing. That's, that's, that's what Paul wants us to see here. The trespass brought death, verse 15. Condemnation, verse 16. And the kingdom of death itself, in verse 17. And in comparison, the free gift in Jesus brought the grace of God, verse 15. Justification, in verse 16. And the kingdom of redeemed humanity in Christ, verse 17. Now, there's something I really want you guys to see in verse 17. So look closely at this. Um, it's kind of a surprising twist, and it's something I have never noticed until studying this passage this, this week. Verse 17 says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. You see, I would expect it to say something like this. Because of the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more will life reign through the obedience of the other man. I would expect it to see that. Death reigned, life reigned. It's a nice balanced parallelism. And my brain has read that for however many years I've been reading Romans 5. But that's not what it says. It's not what it says. It says death reigned. And then it says those, where'd it go? I lost it. Those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. In other words, Christians reign. Death reigned under Adam and in Christ, believers reign in life. Life doesn't reign in believers Believers reign in life. And that was a big curveball I did not see coming. And it's like, what does that mean? What does that mean? How does that change things? 
it's not that life reigns in us, which would have been a true statement, right? We have eternal life um, in Christ. That would be a true statement. But it's the idea that, that believers, realm, uh, b- believers reign in the realm of life. Life is given to us in the same way that it was given to Adam in the garden to take dominion, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. It is yours. It is for your joy and my glory. Yet without the possibility of us messing it up because we aren't the head this time. We aren't the head this time. Jesus is the head and he's already done the work. He's already received and and has sealed the deal, right? He has begun a new creation. When he rose from the dead, think about this. Where did Jesus rise from the dead or in the grave? Where was his tomb? In a garden. Coincidence? I think not. First man was brought out of the dirt, out of the ground, in a garden. Given dominion. Given a covenant. Given promises. Right? And, and given humanity in him. The second Adam comes and is raised out of the ground in a garden. And he's given, he's sealed at this point, a covenant of grace that accomplishes what it promises. It's a done deal. And then all those who follow after him receive those promises. We reign in that life that he has secured from us. Secured for us, rather. I, that should give you confidence. Because I tend to mess things up. I'm the kind of guy that I'm just like playing with something. You know, um, I could be holding that cup, sitting out there just playing with it. And, and you know, I just like crush it and crack it and break it. And, you know, whatever it is. I, I was playing with a kid's toy one time and just messing with it. And just popped the kid's toy. And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> it's like, i got to go buy them a new toy. Um, but I, I mess up everything. But because this new creation that Jesus has done is based upon his work and our participation in it is by faith in him, the head, it's a sure deal. We can't mess it up. And he calls us in to follow him into the the joy that he brings. So what does it look like to reign in the realm of life? Does it look like you walking around with swagger, you know, with the, the nicest clothes, and making everyone serve you because you're the king. You know, she thinks she's the queen and we're the sorry people. <laughs> Do y'all know about that? I gotta show you. Wife swap is great. Bacon is good for me. Google it. It's worth your time. Does it look like that in reigning in life? Jesus talks about that. The world, the masters, you know, lord it over, lord their authority over their people. But Jesus says, it's not that way with you. The first will be last, and the last will be first. So what does reigning in the realm of life look like? I mean, that sounds good, right? Yeah, that's we reign in life, but how do you do that on Tuesday? When you wake up on Tuesday, and it's like, all right, I got to reign in life. What, what do I do? Here's what it looks like. It looks like freedom. It looks like strength. It looks like victory. And it's not a boastful thing because it's through Christ alone. It looks like freedom. You are secure in your head, Jesus. He's freed you from lifelong slavery to your sin. He's freed you from the lifelong slavery to the fear of death. Right? And so you can walk through this world free because Christ has set you free. It looks like strength, that you can endure difficulty and hardship and you can persevere even in your weakness because the Lord himself is your strength. And so we can put up with all sorts of hardship, all sorts of persecution and difficulty, suffering, because the Lord is our strength and he has set us free. And it looks like victory. We can walk, not in shame, but we can walk through life with no guilt, we can put sin to death in our life. Those habits that you are enslaved to and you just can't seem to kick. You can have victory over those things because of your head. Because he has made victory over those things and he has given those to them. 
And so this is how we reign in life. And like I said, it's not boastful because it's not in us. You know, it's not us who made ourselves free. It's not our strength that is ultimate strength, that our strength can be taken from us like that. And, and we didn't accomplish the victory. It's all in Christ alone, so it can be a humble reign. The first will be last. The last will be first. But it's important that we note this, that, that we reign in this life because some people's version of Christianity is a defeatism. The, the, to be a Christian means that you're just the, you know, you're the one that gets kicked all over the place. That you're constantly going to lose. But Christianity is not a life of defeat. In fact, we are more than conquerors in Christ, as it says at the end of Romans 8. You're, you're more than conquerors, even when it looks like defeat to the world. And, and here's the thing. We have to believe that. You have to believe that you're more than conqueror in Christ, even when it looks like defeat to the world. The, the, the example of this that immediately comes to mind with me is the example of Latimer and Ridley. Latimer and Ridley were among the first martyrs in the English Reformation who was put to um, be burned at the stake under the reign of Bloody Mary, 1555. Um, Hugh Latimer and, and Ridley um, are to be burned at the stake together for their teaching in the Protestant Reformation, justification by faith alone, the uh, authority of scriptures alone, and they're, they're there, the wood is being stacked around their body, the flames have been lit, and a as you would, um, you would be, um, I would be a nervous wreck. Well, think of, here's the situation. Uh, Master Ridley, um, he would not burn. And he literally says that, so, sorry, well, I will, I will, I'm not, I won't burn. So he was suffering an agony. And, and Latimer responds to Ridley, he says, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. They are in the prime example of defeat. They're, they're burning at the stake at the hands of Queen Mary, who would go down in history is known as Bloody Mary. They have lost but that's not how they saw it. That's not how Latimer, Hugh Latimer saw it. He sought to encourage his brother who was right there with him, who was uh, suffering, and he told, tells him, be a man. He's, the, the dude is, is burning, and he says, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. Man up. Why? Because we're not losing, we're winning. We are more than conquerors. We shall this day light such a candle. If I could be that poetic when they're lighting me on fire. <laughs> we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in English, England as I trust shall never be put out. They were more than conquerors. They were victorious even when it looked like defeat to the world. After all, the greatest victory in the kingdom of God was when the King Jesus himself was nailed to a cross. He was beaten, mocked, scorned, reviled, stabbed in the side, and died as a criminal. And yet that was where death received its decisive death blow. That is when the, the head of the serpent was bruised by the seed of the woman. That promise of redemption this promise of the covenant of grace that was established for God's elect people through their federal head, Jesus Christ. And so therefore we live free in Christ and we live free faithfully into whatever he calls you. Why did Latimer, uh, Latimer and Ridley go to the, to the stake? Because they were free men. And that freedom they had in Christ could not be taken away from them. And so live free. This is how we reign in life. Even if it looks like defeat, we reign. Now, Jesus as that prime example, that, that ring, that substance that the shadow is just pointing to, 
He is that new federal head and this new covenant relationship that God instituted with his people. So let's get back to some theology for just a second. We talked about the covenant of works made with Adam in the garden. Now let's talk about the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace. This was a covenant that was promised to humanity, as I just quoted in Genesis 3.15. And it was revealed in farther steps throughout redemptive history. And the shadow got less shadowy. The imprint in the clay got clearer to see. And it was formalized in Jesus' blood. As we see in Luke 22.20, when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, he says, like, this is, he says, take this cup. This is my blood. This is the new covenant in my blood. And so Jesus sheds his blood, instituting this new covenant, this covenant of grace. And in this covenant, Jesus was an obedient Adam. We see this in, in verse 19. It says, um, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So Jesus was an obedient Adam. And he fulfilled this covenant of works. He perfectly obeyed God. He, he didn't break the covenant. He was faithful to all that God had commanded him to do. And when we talk about the obedience of Christ, we talk about it in these terms of active and passive obedience. You can understand the obedience of Christ in these two words. These are important. Active and passive obedience. The active obedience of Christ is his obedience to the law and the will of God. That he, was, he never sinned. He never uh, broke God's law in any way. He did all that he was commanded to do, and he never did what he was forbidden to do. He was faithful uh, to the law of God. This is his active obedience. Um, his passive obedience, this isn't like passive in the sense, I'm just going to chill and let nothing happen. This is passive in the sense of the Latin root of that word. is passion to suffer. The, the, the passive obedience of Christ is the suffering obedience that he endured on the cross that atoned for our sin, that he was obedient to the Father even to the point of death on a cross. And so where Adam disobeyed and he, and he rebelled right from the start, Jesus was faithful all the way to the end when he shed his blood. Many were made sinners in Adam and many are made righteous in Christ. There is no other way. Okay. So, so a lot of people object to that federal headship idea in the fall of Adam, right? That's not fair. We can't be condemned because of the one disobedience of Adam. Well, friend, if you get rid of that, then you can't share in the one obedience of Christ because you didn't do that either. <laughs> and that's Paul's whole point. It's, it's a free gift. It wasn't you. It was your head, right? So, there's no other way to be made righteous before God than being found in Christ. And how, do we, how are we found in Christ? It's by faith, through belief in Him and trust in His work in our behalf. Federal headship means that the free gift of grace is free. It's purchased by us, purchased for us by our everlasting head. And so what do you do? How do you, how do you get in on this? How do you get in on this covenant of grace, this free gift? You open empty hands of faith and you receive it. You stop pretending that you can earn favor with God based on your own righteousness. Right? You stop pretending that you can uphold a covenant of works, that you can be good. Humble yourself. The Bible calls that repentance. Turn away from your sin, turn away from your self-righteousness, confess your sin, and look to Jesus, your Savior, the only head that can bring eternal life. And so that's the sermon. So here are five points of application. One, you're either in Adam or in Christ. Who is your head? You're either in Adam or in Christ. Have you confessed your sins? Have you repented of your sins? And have you placed faith in the work of Christ on your behalf? And will you receive life and eternal life in Him? Or will you be condemned in Adam 
and for the sin that you do. Here, one thing I left out of the sermon, so let's rewind a little bit. <laughs> Why do you sin? You sin because you're a sinner. You're not a sinner because you sin. But you sin because you're a sinner. Your sin proves what you are. And so you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. Who's your head? And if you need help kind of figuring out how, how I get in Christ, I know that can sound like some Christian flowery language that you don't really understand. Um, how do we do that? I'd be glad to walk through that with you. Um, and tell you it, it's, not a, it's not a spell or anything that you have to, enchantment that you have to walk through. It is simply trusting in the work of Jesus, but I'd be glad to, to walk through that with you. The second point of application is that there are only two ultimate categories of humanity. There are only two, ultimately, well, two ultimate categories of humanity. So that means that there's no room for racism. There's no room for any sort of superiority based on any sort of category because you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. And if you're in Christ, it's because, not because you're any better than those in Adam. It's because Christ had mercy on you. Amen. So there's no point of superiority, right? You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. I don't care what color you are. I don't care what gender you are or think you are. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. And if you're in Adam, we, we love you and we pray for you and we once were too. And those of us who are in Christ, it's by His mercy alone. And so we have no reason to boast. We boast in Him. Number three, reign in life. Reign in life. Live free from the fear of death. Live free from the fear of death. And this is a hard one. This takes us a lifetime to get through. And, and oftentimes it takes a, a close encounter with death to get through. Live free from the fear of death. Why? Because you have eternal life in Christ. You have eternal life in Christ. I, I remember um, sort of in probably 2021, after we all figured out kind of, okay, what's going on with the COVID thing, uh, me and the boys were driving down Baytree and there's a guy walk, walking down Baytree. I think he might even been jogging down Baytree and no one's around him. It's like 95 degrees outside and he's wearing his mask and he's jogging down the road and there's no one within a half mile from this dude. And, and the boy's like, why is he wearing a mask? There's no one out there. And I was like, because he's scared to die. He's, he's afraid to die. And, and I'll tell you guys, I remember that. So rewind yourself back to 2020 when we were told that two, was it, two million people are going to die in the next two weeks. And I was like, oh my gosh, we're, we're about to die. I've got to get prepared for this. Right? I was, I was touching the gas pump with plastic bags and all this kind of stuff. And we were leaving our groceries out in the sun because we thought we were all going to die. But what that did is that say, okay, this is how I should be living every day. Not paranoid and setting our groceries out in the sun. <laughs> but with the reality that we could die right now. You could die tomorrow. Death is real because of Adam. And, and though we, we, we still die because that final consummation, that resurrection of the dead hasn't fully happened yet. It's a reality that we have to face. And, and we face that reality by setting our minds on Christ. And knowing that he has overcome death. And even though we die, yet shall we live. And so practice that. Practice that. Uh, do risky things. Not foolish things, but risky things. Practice faith in God. Number four. You can't out the grace of God. Look at verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. All this verse is saying is that law that was added with Moses, that came in to show you even more how much of a sinner you are. But where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. So if you think you have out your ability to be saved, guess what? God's whole purpose of giving that law was to show you how much greater His grace is. So you can't out the grace of God. Why? Because it's all grace. 
And the reward of salvation is based upon the obedience of your head, not you. Finally, number five. Sin reigned in death, but now grace reigns through righteousness. Sin reigned in death, but now grace reigns through righteousness. Here's what this means. Put your sin to death. And that's going to lead. Next week we're going to spend some more time on that in Romans chapter 6. Put your sin to death. Sin no longer reigns. Death no longer reigns. You reign, believer in Christ. You have victory. You're not to walk through life in defeat. Uh, I don't know if this happens in any of your small groups, but I've seen it happen before where you kind of go through your accountability partner process in um, small groups and you confess your sins and you, a guy might confess this sin in his group and all the other guys like, yeah, yeah, man, I, I struggle with that too. And oh, yeah, yeah. And, and you never do anything about it. But you just wallow in it. You surrender the fight. You believe the lie of defeatism. But you reign in life. Take dominion over the sin that holds you captive when you're just willingly holding on the chains. Christ has set you free. Be free. Put the sin to death. Reign in life. And as I said, next week we'll unpack that uh, more fully. But that's where we're headed. And so, um, like I said, this is a very theological sermon. But the theology matters. It impacts how you live Every day of your life, it impacts how you view yourself, how you view God, how you view others, and how you view those things impact the things that you do. And so we want to do everything, all of life, quorum Deo, before the face of God and seeing Jesus getting glory in all of it. So let's pray. Uh, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you how it instructs us where we uh, need to be instructed, that it corrects us where we need to be corrected, and it encourages us where we need to be encouraged. God, I pray that each person here tonight uh, would find themselves in Christ, that they would turn to Him, realize that they are uh, hopeless at life and righteousness in and of themselves. They're doomed from the beginning because of the sin of Adam. And we have confirmed this in our own actions, in our own sin. So Lord, I pray that hearts would be turned towards Jesus to receive mercy in Him and to, to live in light of that mercy day by day. God, I pray that you would give us uh, victory over sin that, that holds us down and prevents us from the fullness of joy that you have for us at your right hand. And God, I pray that you uh, bless this ministry as we seek to be faithful to you, as we sent, seek to represent this new humanity, a new way of living in Jesus Christ in a university and in a world that still bears the marks of that fall. We ask you to do this work so that you would receive glory in it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.